Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, I am recording this podcast on Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because... The days uh, seem to be blurring over the past few weeks. Uh, on Friday, March 27th, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. You can find the 15-minute introductory episode I recorded and posted as episode number 82 on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, practitioners, Asking two questions, how is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare, and how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily, so in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm uh, attempting to release a new episode every day or two or three this week, and uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks as well. Now, I have to tell you, uh, I am so excited to be speaking with our guest today, Lee Becker. I'm going to allow him to share what he thinks is important about his background. He's got such a unique background, uh, such a professional, and so passionate about the work he's doing, and I think uh, really has a, a lot to say and a lot of great information uh, and lessons to teach us about the current situation. So Lee, I just want to say welcome to this podcast series. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And could you just share a little bit about yourself before we jump into the questions? Absolutely. Um, thank you again so much for having me on and thank you for your leadership in this time of need uh, where we do need to look at how we transform healthcare more now more than ever. But my background is a been uh, after 22 years of uh, service within the military and also at, in the federal government with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, background is around mostly around critical care and emergency medicine, uh, background around trauma, combat medicine, aerospace medicine in, in the military, served uh, uh, during Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And I, I was really privileged during that time to, to help think through what are the changes of those wars and how that impacted our wounded warriors regarding to mental health with brain injury, with a lot of the multi, uh, the polytrauma type um, care that was needed. And then subsequently, how do we take care of those uh, wounded warriors, the veterans post and making sure that there is continuity of care and care coordination uh, to make sure that they uh, achieve the highest, greatest impact and outcome in their lives. Uh, so most recently, I had the opportunity to work at the VA and uh, really had the honor to help stand out the first customer experience office, um, arguably in the federal government at the VA. Uh, it's a tremendous effort that required a whole VA approach to do and a whole new thinking, a new culture change. Uh, and here I am, you know, I'm proud to be at Vidali to help now take some of those lessons and ideas and, and learnings and then be able to share that across public sector and healthcare as well. First of all, I just uh, wanted to, of course, thank you for your service. How long did you serve for tours of duty? I mean, you were you were in the field. Correct. Yes, so I was at different different stages uh, of uh, in the uh, care continuum. So definitely, so in the field was one uh, an expeditionary type of uh, perspective. So whether it is in uh, field hospital, uh, but then across the echelons of care. So whether it is overseas, different um, tertiary facilities. Uh, hospital ship, uh, as we know, Comfort of Mercy is now involved with the current uh, support and also uh, continuity of care back in the state. So we have some incredible facilities like the Walter Reed, Bethesda Walter Reed Medical Center, uh, some of the VA facilities like the polytraumas down in Tampa, Richmond, and Palo Alto, Minneapolis, et cetera, that really have seen the brunt of the, the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and have been able to do amazing heroic work around taking care of our, our wounded and making sure that they get the care that they deserve. But during that time, we have truly rethought and re we looked at all the policies and the procedures and processes, which as we know, the type of care that was needed 
for those for that set of veterans were very different than in prior conflicts and prior wars. Um, so it's been really tremendous to see that transformation there. And I think there's a lot of learnings that we could take from during that time and apply it to this war, this war in COVID. How has the consumer experience already been reframed from your perspective? Great question. Uh, I, I think it has, ref it has changed everything. We're seeing the changes around the consumer, around the patient, in ways that I think is truly inspirational to watch. What I mean by this is that it's not just, when we think about the patient, it just can't be about the patient. If we just think about the patient um, in the sense of the clinical aspect, we are, we're blindsided. We have to think about it as a human, as a total human, and, and the entire ecosystem around that human. So whether the family, the friends, the caregivers, and I think what we're finding with this, with COVID is how here we are, you know, sheltering in place. We're finding that there's so many other aspects to this, and it's not just clinical. It's not clinical focus. And that was actually one of the lessons we learned um, during uh, post-Iraq and Afghanistan wars, was that it was not just the clinical aspect. It was all the, as we think about all the social determinants of health, all those key aspects that really enable the, the human to, to really achieve greatness. And I think what we're seeing here with, with COVID, with the current situation, we're seeing the best companies in the world, the best, the, the most progressive healthcare systems, the agencies in our federal, in our government, uh, state, local, and federal are embracing that perspective. They're looking at, at the whole person, the whole human. And then from that, they're able to then understand what those needs are and what uh, perhaps different requirements. And as we know in COVID, this COVID world that we are in, it's very evolving and very fast. And using that model, and we could look at it as we call it the customer experience model, to be able to then change the plans, the programs, the policies, the technologies, everything to enable uh, the goals, the mission that you're trying to achieve. I would agree with you on this first observation in terms of the shift from a clinical medical model to more of a psychosocial model. Do you have sort of a picture in mind of what that would look like or, or how that might play out in actual clinical care delivery or in the practice? Absolutely. I, I think that what we've proven from the customer experience model, we've seen that in healthcare, and this is what we've, we've looked at, the VA has been able to, to really dive into, and we have other healthcare systems like Banner and others that have been embracing that, that model is to really look at it from the patient patient experience, from a whole patient experience perspective. And to do that, we really got to think through it in, in really kind of three, I would say three primary areas, and there's a fourth one as well. And it really gets to around data. You have to have the right data to be able to truly effectuate the changes that's needed and provide the very best care. So in data, typically in the healthcare model, data is seen as what's in the electronic health record, you know, uh, throughput, right, um, utilization rates of all the, the quality, safety, all those things that make a healthcare systems run. But what we're finding is it's not just that we're, we're actually flying blind by doing that. We're actually very, we're looking in the rearview mirror um, because all those indicators are very lagging. Uh, and so we found was through the patient experience model that if you take data and you really kind of harness the, the voice of the customer, the voice of the patient, the voice of the person, the whole person, we're able to then send signals in lifetime of all the different aspects that that patient, that person is uh, projecting. And those are signals that can come in various different ways. And it's not just the clinical aspect. Those are the non-clinical, the psychosocial aspects that you've mentioned that we have to be able to capture because those are the things that's going to help be able to drive, to drive the care that we need. And frankly, what I think what we found in VA, that when we do that, when we truly look at the, the experience model, what we do is we actually, tr we start driving and improving trust. And trust is a key aspect. Uh, and, and some may say you can't measure trust, but at VA, we've proven it. Over four years, we've been able to measure trust and be able to measure how experience impacts trust and how that's actually improving the, uh, how our patients are are actually utilizing the care because they trust you, they'll, they'll, they'll like you and they want to you know, come back and use you. 
which is so important, especially in this time of COVID, when when we need we need our the public to listen, right, and listen to uh, the experts to be able to then help us collectively. So data is one. Tools is a, is a second one. There's tools that you can do. Just look at the best companies in the world, and we work with some of the best companies that have developed tools, and they're right now in the process of developing new newer tools on how do we enable the workforce to be able to really uh, deliver the new types of cares, benefits, and services that the population is going to need. There's going to be this new, the consumer is going to be asking for, and they're already demanding for a new way of doing business. So we have to apply those tools to do that. And it could be different types of training. It could be new processes. It could be policies. It's like, for instance, HHS, they, they put out a policy around alleviating the pressures around telehealth, for instance. So giving uh, more flexibility for healthcare systems to do that. That is a very experience-focused way, approach, in how to alleviate the pressures so that give the tools to the the institutions, the systems that actually are doing the work. Give it to the providers that are doing that so they could do the work. Third is technology. So technology is the third one. And technology is really powerful. And technology, not for the sake of technology. Having technology to enable the experience that you're trying to provide is truly powerful. And we have incredible technology that can really listen and sense in, in live time the, the voice of the patient, the voice of the, the human, and all the supporters around them to be able to then understand how to not reactive, being reactive, but anticipate and be proactive in the response and to, to provide the care in a responsive way, in a proactive, anticipatory, and responsive way. And finally is engagement. The engagement, the way we are going to be engaging with the public, with our patients, with our, the people, is changing. It's changed. Uh, and we need to be able to embrace it. So whether it is how you, how you engage through more social, through social media, that's of course, you know, one, but there's ways to do that. And how do you make engagement really not for the sake of engagement? If you take the insights, you take the, the learnings of understanding our, our consumers, our customers, our patients, our citizens, and you take those insights to drive, to drive engagement, that's truly powerful. And we've seen the best companies in the world do that. The way they outreach, the way they market, they don't just do that for the sake of marketing and the sake of outreach. They do it very intentionally based on age, understanding um, the segment experience from age, gender, race, ethnicity. As we know, for instance, with COVID right now, there is disparities around race, ethnicity. For our African-American brothers and sisters, they are right now, the mortality rate is higher, right? So we need to do a better job from a public health perspective, engaging them differently based on the data. This type of methodology saves lives because it enhances the entire care model to be able to deliver the very best care to our uh, patient population. How did this evolve in the VA? I mean, one doesn't necessarily think of the VA as, you know, leading in this area, but apparently from everything I can tell, uh, and again, I've spoken to Dr. Shulkin in the past a number of times too, and now speaking with you, it just seems like you're way ahead of the rest of the industry and, and maybe because the rest of the industry is actually an industry and you're not. So just kind of curious as to your thoughts about that. Great, great question. And, you know, I was, I'll tell you, um, early on, I was a, actually a pretty big critic uh, to the VA. Uh, so when I was on the military side, and this is back, this is going back to 2005, 2006, you know, during the height of the war, um, when we we had our troops coming back and with you know traumatic brain injury mental you know mental health challenges and you know it was challenging working with the VA. Part, in part was because I don't think that that during that time everyone was truly aware of the impacts of the war, and I think that's part of it, like that awareness and having that burning platform, as Covey talks about, I think is important in any type of uh, when you're leading change. And so that was kind of the challenge that I had. Okay, how do we create this burning platform when here we are, you know, when you, you see it, you see the crisis, like you see it, right? You have your coalition, you know, the, the, the people around you, we see the crisis, but how do you compel an organization to do that? And I think it took a few phases for the VA to, to get on board. And again, it's not a, and I say this to say, I want to say is that our, the people of the VA are incredible. 
we had, there was a couple of crises that happened. One was the crisis in Walter Reed. In 2007, we had a situation where because of uh, essentially uh, the Washington Post highlighted where wounded warriors were um, walking up their walking up the stairs with no legs, with innate in non-ADA compliant facilities, et cetera, right? If you dig into trying to figure out what happened there, okay, you re we realize that the reason why the hospital wasn't ready, Walter Reed at the time wasn't ready, was because it was on BRAC. BRAC is a term, a term that is used in the defense realm where we look at base realignment, where we look at new facilities and closing facilities, et cetera. So Walter Reed was actually on the BRAC because at the time they were going to be moving Walter Reed to Bethesda and make it this like kind of expansive place. But here we needed that capacity very fast. You know, so we needed to build a plane while we we're flying. We couldn't just shut something down. So that was one of the reasons. So you could see how policies can, if it's not human centered, and if it doesn't change well with the crisis can, can hurt the process. So that was one. I think that, started uh, tremendous. We had the Dole Shalala Commission, which really helped relook at how we provide care, traumatic brain injury, mental health, care coordination, disability. That has really helped, I think, drive the changes early on. The second, I would say, really, and there's multiple other burning platforms that kind of got to the point of where, hey, we needed to change the way we were doing business, not just window dressing, was in 2014. In 2014, we had a major crisis in Phoenix VA where um, veterans were not getting the care that they needed and our, our systems, our operational systems were showing that they were. So what was happening is, so the headquarters had no idea about the issues that was happening at the ground, the ground level, the field level, and leadership wasn't, wasn't aware because, not because people were ignoring it and maybe some say that they were, we could perhaps argue what that was, but if you look at the root cause of what happened there is they were missing a key set of data. The data that they were missing, I know novel concept, here we are taking care of veterans, but we were missing the actual experience and insights directly from the veteran and their families. That was a pivotal moment. And we had a secretary by the name of Secretary Bob McDonald, who came from Procter & Gamble and at PNG, he instituted the customer experience framework. And he actually has, has done incredible work around reimagining re the customer experience. Like, for instance, the My Tide. So the Tide detergent, the whole My Tide campaign was all around reimagining and making, you know, the you know, detergent to be all consumer focused, right? The whole all the innovation there. And there's so much more innovation that he did. But he brought those models into our and said, hey, he made the case. You, you all are amazing. You're amazing people. You've got some incredible academic uh, capabilities and research functions, innovations, like you've invented. I mean, you've, you've done some incredible things, right? But you're missing a core cap consumer experience, customer experience capability that is, is holding you back. That changed the way we were. And that's from there. This is where we developed his, his goal was to develop the customer experience office at VA, where we call it the veterans experience office and where we implemented literally best in class practices across the industry, across. We took, we took examples from hospitality. We took examples because if you think about it, right, hospital, hosp hospitality, there's a lot of similarities in how we should provide care to that, right? Retail, there's a retail component. And you, if you're talking about an outpatient clinic, right? financial services, you look, we looked at the best of the best and we looked at what are the best tools out there that can enable us to do this. And this is one of the reasons why at VA, we went with Medallia because Medallia had, that, had those technical capabilities to enable that experience. Just the same way, the same way we're able to enable the best in class companies, why can't we do that for our, you know, our citizens, our veterans, our patients, our farmers? Why can't we take harness the same capabilities and enable and start prioritizing and focusing the needs, not based on what the institution thinks is best, but what a novel concept, what the human thinks it's best. Mm -hmm. There's so many things I love about what you're saying and, and thank you for sharing that background. You know, one lesson I'm learning from speaking to you is 
you know, they, they talk about not wasting a crisis. I think it's more serious than that. I think that there is a huge potential of a missed opportunity here if we let this go. And if we don't learn the lessons and don't uh, use this as a catalyst to shift healthcare in so many ways to make it more humanistic. So that was one lesson I picked up from what you just said. The other is, you know, this idea that using the tools of marketing, far from making healthcare less humanistic and less relationship-centered and less patient-centered is quite the opposite. It actually makes it so much more humanistic uh, because we learn to actually uh, figure out how to understand who our customer is, so to speak, who our patients are, their background, their desires, their needs, what drives them, their expectations. And by listening and learning and using data and advanced technologies and advanced techniques that have been developed, we really can make healthcare so much better. Uh, and it's completely aligned with the professionalism of healthcare. And so it's it's almost paradoxical. And the same could be said for technology. People say, you know, my God, this technology, this distancing uh, virtual is going to make healthcare less personal. I wonder what's your take on that? Yes, I, I've heard that too. And what is interesting, I, you know, I think at the VA side, I go back to VA because VA has been really uh, a leader around telehealth for many years. Um, I actually had the uh, privilege to be part of their um, when we're th- rethinking the restacking of the technology at VA around uh, for telehealth and telebenefits. Um, I was involved in, in some of that work with some incredible visionary people. And during that time, what we were moving towards is moving from ISDN uh, technology to IP uh, back in 2007-ish, eight. And so that was really important for us to really start driving this new kind of way because we knew that from a capacity standpoint, we could not sustain Sustain. Uh, and if you think about a lot of our healthcare systems were in uh, large metropolitan areas, we knew we had to, and where our veterans were living, they were necessarily living right in the metropolitan areas, like San Francisco. You know, San Francisco, you can't, a veteran, you can't, most people can't afford living in San Francisco. So how do we rethink about how do we deliver care? So telehealth has been really a, a true kind of aspect that I would say a pillar for VA, where last year, 10% of our, our, uh, I say our, but the VA, uh, Appointments were all telehealth, right? So ten percent, and that's and that's pretty. You know, you talk about eighty-five million visits. You know, ten percent is is nothing. It's it's pretty big. And now what we're seeing is they've actually ramped it up to close to eighty-five percent. Eighty-five percent of their visits are now through telehealth. I mean, it's incredible. But that's because they have the they have the foundations of of that, and they built some of that muscle. Could you say that again? What percentage? 85% of the visits, of the routine visits, are right now through telehealth. Wow. And what was it's the number before? 10, 10%. Wow. So it's, it's truly incredible of how, and of course now it's out of necessity, but when you think about, and most, a lot of the visits, and you think about, uh, you know, you can, of course you can't do everything through telehealth yet, but there's so much opportunity. I mean, you, you've got, uh, you, know, you could do remote telemetry, and we do that in the facility, as we know. We have remote telemetry in the facility, so why can't we do remote telemetry you know, at home? So there's so many different ways to really uh, harness it. And what interesting note is from talking recently, actually, with VA, they just recently did a, uh, a study around telehealth and a human-centered design study to understand, you know, perhaps what are the pain points around it. What they found was, and this is why it's so important to start with the human, start with asking the human what it is. And it's not just the patient, but also the provider. What they found was some of the barriers around telehealth was around the patient, uh, the veteran feeling that they were not presentable on video. And what's interesting is they found that for the provider, the provider felt the same way that they were not presentable on video. So then how do you create, so there's tools, there's ways to do that, right? You could, you could almost uh, tee up the, the veteran. You could say, uh, you know, tell them, hey, these are the rules of video. You don't have to, you could, you could be in a t-shirt, shorts, right? The front, you could almost create, normalize that, that encounter. So there's ways to deal with that. But taking a human-centered way really will enable us to do it. I think also what we're finding is that with intentionality, with being intentional about creating that connection can increase the human connectivity and will enable that, enable the connectedness. And I think people will find that through the telehealth framework that you could actually have very, very close connection. Uh, with technology, um, as you think about telehealth, 
we could do some incredible cool things. There's this movement around asynchronous telehealth where we could ease and we have technology that can enable the telehealth visit where we almost, and this is a great thing for the providers too, imagine where we have this, a, a video interface and we call that living lens, a video interface where the patient at any given point in time, they could pick up their phone, create a video. We have the technology behind the scenes through AI to be able to listen to themes and trends in that voice track and pick up themes and trends and be able to then use that to triage and to be able to then figure out what priority that patient uh, should be. There's technology we could do that right now. There's with, voice, with facial recognition, with understanding sentiment, we have the ability to do that through that. So through asynchronous telehealth, we have the opportunity to really alleviate the pressure of a healthcare system, improve the provider experience, and what a novel concept. I know you'd appreciate this, that. But imagine the voice to text goes directly into the EHR. Why do we have to have, with the current technology that we have today, why do we have to have providers, you know, still clicking down, you know, drop-down boxes? You know, we have the technology where voice to text can go directly into the EHR and EMR and, and enable, enable that uh, not only incredible experience for the patient, but also for the provider. That's pretty cool. So you're saying a vet can call in and the technology can recognize the urgency and use an, uh, an algorithm to decide where to send that patient, where to navigate that patient, whether it be, would it be like an emergency room or urgent care or what are the possibilities? Absolutely. I, exactly. So to clarify, this, this is emerging technology that's happening. We can do this right now. We do the, the triage from the text and it's happening actually at VA where veterans provide text around uh, self-harm or uh, their financial hardship, we have that automatically going directly 24-7, 365, going directly to the National Crisis Line and Suicide Prevention Line and also to the Homeless Hotline. So there is the capability right now at scale to be able to triage and identify it through alerts, through the technology that Medallia has to be able to drive that action. But through video, absolutely, we could, we almost... The same way we have, and I, and I know I was a triage nurse, um, so the job of a triage nurse in the emergency room, you're right in the front, and your job is to, you're the eyes and ears of that emergency room department, right, that trauma center. You're, you're seeing what's coming in, and you're going to decide what priority level they have, right? Is it the life or limb, et cetera, and, you, and that's, that's your job. But it's an algorithm. There's algorithms involved, and we could build that in. I know, and this is where I think with COVID, I believe that through looking at technology around, you know, signal capture is going to be one of the most incredible transformations that will help move healthcare in a whole different way, whether it is in the, in the realm of precision medicine, genomics, you know, we're talking about signal capture around experience, having the ability to capture data can allow us to enable an incredible experience for our providers, our patients, and really drive healthcare to the next level uh, that we need it to be. That's really amazing. I don't know that. And I'm curious if you think we're going to go back to the 85, 90% in-person visits in the exam room, because I, I suspect not, but I'm curious your opinion and perspective on that. But even so, I think what we're learning is that in this era, it's even more important to be in touch with people. We will not see them in the same way we saw them before. And truth is, this may actually be better. So I'm kind of curious as to some of your thoughts about that. Yes, great question. And if I may take that question and really think of it from a, you know, both as we, as you, I know you do as well, from a patient and you know, the person perspective and also the provider perspective, I, I think it's going to really shift. Yes, it's absolutely going to shift the way we deliver care. I think what we're starting to see is there's ways, gone are the days that the provider has to be right, you know, in person with the patient for the patient to believe and, and follow that care plan we have an opportunity to really highlight and expand self-service in a way where we're able to educate our, our the, patient, the patient population, which is very, I mean, frankly, they're doing that already. I mean, right, they've been doing that. And I know a lot of docs may not like this, but I know, you know, they'll go to Google. Like back when I was, you know, initially early on was practicing care. I had, I had, I'll never forget, I had the aviators, you know, I was doing aerospace medicine early on, you know, very bright. They, they would have a copy of the Merck manual and they would tell me what, you know, what type of care that they should be getting. 
Uh, I'll never forget that. They would do that. But the point is, is that people want to, they want to be empowered. They want to be able to do so through, I think we have an opportunity through self-service to really be able to highlight that. And, and there's a lot of lessons on the consumer side for that. Um, so if you think about the tier, you know, think of a contact center model and Kaiser has embraced that actually. Um, you think about uh, tier, so tier zero, right? Tier zero would be your website, making sure your website has all the information that it needs and, and make sure it's human centered so that patients can be able to at, interact with you. You know, it used to be, and we still have, unfortunately, federal agencies, and we're trying to change that mindset um, where they have uh, their website is all about them, right? All about how, gr how great um, their agency is. And, but it's very hard for a citizen to really navigate towards it. So, you know, where you have like, for instance, VA, what they've done is truly inspirational around, look, if you go to va.gov, you could go in there and you actually, the, the website is based on what veterans wanted, not what VA wanted, right? And you could go in there and actually apply for benefits. You could set up a healthcare appointment, which goes to telehealth now, most of it, um, and actually get, get stuff done, right? And so we're seeing that change around that tier zero. I talked about asynchronous telehealth. I think that's tier zero plus where you have the ability at a front door, you create that front door where through video, you have the ability to capture those, those insights and be able to triage and be able to use that as a way, a vehicle to, to reframe and reimagine your care process. Tier one, two, three, four, that gets more, as the care gets more and more complex, those are the higher level tiers. So I think we will start seeing the use of technology, the use of processes that the private sector has, has embraced for a very long time, I mean, again, Kaiser has been doing it. USAA is another great example. They've been approaching it. The VA has been following that, those models in doing it. We will see that moving. The second piece I think is important is the provider piece. And I think the provider piece is something that we really need to be paying attention to. Early on in VA, when we were doing telehealth, we found that satisfaction, the experience for the providers and providing telehealth was actually lower than the satisfaction experience of our veterans. And part in part is because of the processes, and we have not maybe early on. Now we've done, we've made some improvements, but early on we haven't really paid attention to the needs of the provider um, as much uh, as well. And I think that's going to be really key. We're seeing, and I know I was one of those uh, providers that early on, and again, a lot of it was trauma and emergency medicine, but the trauma impacted me, right? And I had burnout, and I didn't know enough then, and I don't think we knew enough back, you know late 90s, early 2000s about those, those impacts, right? Mid 2000s about those impacts. So we've learned a lot over, over that time. I think what we're seeing now with our healthcare providers, I feel bad for them because I, you know, I was trained, I was trained for uncertainty, I was trained for war, I was trained to be in that environment to adapt and overcome. What we're seeing these providers, and they're, they're incredible, those healthcare teams on the front lines are just amazing. And what they're doing, they're ingenious, they're dealing with a novel virus, and they're finding incredible ways. They're learning on the fly about how to truly manage a cure, manage a patient on a ventilator, realizing that it's not the traditional way of doing it. They're realizing things and they're, they're making those changes. They're being innovative at the fly. But what we are seeing is we are seeing, so we're seeing heroic efforts, but we are seeing provider burnout. We are seeing, and my worry is that we will see similar numbers that we did from the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. We had healthcare providers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, 70%, 70, 70%, this was a study done out of Navy Medicine by Dr. Bob Kaufman and Dr. Westfall. 70% of the healthcare providers coming back had some sort of mental health diagnosis, whether it is anxiety, PTSD, depression. And so we, we implemented a, a, a capability, a program that I think should be adopted across. It's something called, it's very simple. It's caring for a caregiver. And essentially what it is, is because we know as providers, we are the worst in taking care of ourselves. We're the worst. Thank you. We hope we have, you know, that's why we need um, strong family members and friends around us to help us tell us, hey, come on, doc, take care of yourself, to, you know? So this creates a framework. And we, we're seeing that with, it's happening organically. And a lot of healthcare systems are already employing some of those ideas, like Scripps is doing it. I know Banner. There's others that are, they're doing those type of things where they're really kind of, placing that focus around the provider because that's gonna be really key for us in the future. We have to be able to understand and reimagine what that looks like for them because as we change the processes and as we do more telehealth and, and, and technology becomes um, a more dominant factor in the healthcare space, how does that impact the provider-patient relationship? And being able to understand those needs from the provider 
taking a human-centered design approach, taking a patient experience approach, or rather an employee experience-centric approach, we'll be able to really take advantage of this time uh, to be able to transform healthcare the way we need to. Yeah, no, I think that last point can't be underscored enough. You know, it is sort of a silent epidemic. It was a silent epidemic before COVID, and I think it's gonna we're gonna see it exacerbate. To your point, I'm surprised the number wasn't even higher than seventy percent. I even before COVID, we were seeing problems in terms of burnout in the range of forty to fifty percent. Uh, some specialties were even a little bit higher than that. So that literally means one out of every two, uh, if you want to just round it, providers, that's doctors, nurses, PAs, other staff as well, you know, with the COVID and with the aftermath of COVID, I think you're going to probably see numbers that are comparable to what you were talking about in the military in the 70, 80% range. I think that it is another reframe. It is another shift. All the things we were doing before were wholly inadequate to really attend and address to this issue. And far from making it sort of a stigma or a problem, I think just to understand it as normal, right? Uh, the reaction is normal. The burnout is normal. The fatigue is normal. It's like any other high-performance individual. You know, they require a level of care, a self-care that is beyond the normal. And, you know, whether it's a professional athlete, I mean, I've read from time to time in performance, you know, professional athletes sleep way more than the rest of us do um, because their bodies need to rejuvenate. They, they attend to their bodies and actually to their spirit in a way that allows them to be high performers. And I think, I think in some sense, we should think about caregivers uh, of all sorts, you know, home caregivers, community health workers as performers, and they need to be sustained. And I think that we need to reframe it in that way, as opposed to being a diagnosis or medicalize it. And I think you know, again, I, I'm so grateful for you to bring this point up and to bring this lesson from the military into this, because uh, it, it can very much go back to what it was before, which is, you know, yeah, we'll take care of those people who got burnt out. Well, it's, no, that's not the point. The point is they are caring for others. And exactly as you named it, we have to figure out how to care for the caregivers. I've heard physicians say this. I mean, if you get through medical school and residency, you're resilient. Okay, let's just, let's, let's not kid about that. Um, anyone who's done a few nights of call in the emergency room, you are resilient or you wouldn't be around anymore. So that's not the issue. Um, what we're talking about is sustained performance, sustained caring. And that requires a different uh, approach, radically different, I think, you know, I'd love to explore that further with you because I, I just do not think the literature treats it the right way. I don't think we are treating it the right way. I think it is wholly underserved. And so, again, feel free to respond to that. Absolutely. Um, well said, Doc. I, you know, I, I think that, and, I, and you actually brought up a good point in addition with the caregivers of, you know, our providers, but also the caregivers of, of our patients too. And that's a really important aspect because I love how you framed it as, as performers. You're right. I mean, having that framework, thinking about it that way, I mean, this is what the, how the military looks at sustaining uh, excellence and, uh, and performance for our, for our warrior. You may have heard the term called the warrior athlete. So warrior athlete, so that mindset of being able to really um, develop that uh, service member to be that warrior athlete, very similar to how you would do that for an NBA player, or NFL player. And it, it, there's, a, there's a whole, it's a mind shift. And there's a focus around what that is from nutrition, from you're right, from proper sleep, from mental health, from care through spiritual care, the whole person. And we do that because we want for optimal readiness, for military readiness. But we need to be thinking about this for healthcare readiness. How do we make sure as a society, how do we make sure we have all those enablers? And being able to, to reframe our, for our providers to be able to do that, I think, is really key. And I think there's a way to do that, and I've seen it done, is through really the employee experience kind of framework. And the employee experience framework is really very similar to, you look at it from the customer experience side, you look at it from the employee side. The same principles apply. And really taking it into account, not just, uh, it's, it's looking, at that, the, looking at it as the whole person, again, as the whole human. The employee is not just a commodity, right? Which unfortunately there's, there's companies that have done that and they failed because of that. You have to look at the employee as a whole human and how they, and by doing that, it enables tremendous goodness. And I think the answer to a lot of this enablement is around leadership. I think this is where, um, what I've seen from the best, best companies, the best healthcare systems, the best 
agencies and how they progressed is around leadership. You don't have the good leadership that really espouses servant leadership and really placing people first, the people first, then none of this will be able to be possible. We have to be able to enable the, and unleash the tremendous talents of our people. And there's ways to do it. We have technology, for instance, like Crowdicity. Crowdicity is something that you know, we, do, we have for Medallion. We, we encourage you know, systems, and we've seen healthcare systems like at NHS England. They just recently um, applied this Crowdicity capability to be able to understand how to address the nuances around COVID, not just for, with, for the population, but also within to harness the, the talents of their own employees to be able to co-design, co-create those ideas. And, being, and through innovation, I think innovation and learning, and this is something which I, I don't think it's gonna be very difficult for the healthcare community to do because it is a practice medicine mindset, right? So it comes from the, the practice perspective, from a learning perspective, from a growth perspective, but I think we need our institutions to really enable to unleash that. That's a tremendous power that I think we haven't unleashed yet. We're looking at our docs that I've seen. It's looked as a commodity. And it's looked as, okay, how many RVUs did you do? We're, wonder, we're worried, wondering why our patients are not happy. Some patients are not happy with the care. Well, that's because you, you, we've arbitrarily put these, these limits on, on providers to, and how they are to, uh, supposed to care. So instead of looking at, okay, what is the ideal care model and how do we take care of our patients and then build all the processes, the tools, the technologies from that perspective, not just have, because if you look at most of the EHRs, for instance, right now, they're not a value-based technology. A lot of them, it's RVU-based technology. It's a financial model, right? It's being built from a standpoint of how do we, how do we get the, the funding that's needed to do that? So that's another, I think, realm by focusing on the provider and really harnessing their innovation, the learning from there. I think we can help also rethink about, you know, all the enabling capabilities to actually support and, and really enhance and, and be a force multiplier to provide, uh, for them to provide the best care they can be. I love this um, kind of performance metaphor we've co-created here in this conversation. I I do think this reframe is important because it will allow for a radical shift in how we support providers and moving it away from a disabling diagnostic medicalized situation to one of the performance that, and we see this of course now in COVID, people are just stepping up to the plate in just amazing ways. Again, these are high performing, passionate professionals who have just tremendous experience and skill and we should treat them that way, like they're you know performers in, like you said, the NBA or the NFL, or performers in theater or you know on stage. I mean, it requires a different level of support and sustained support. So one of the other reframes you talked about, and we we had a chance to talk a little bit before we got on this, the whole idea of a reframe from the perspective of public health and bringing in a public health mindset, and obviously, you know, coming from the military and having that um, medical military background, and of course, being in the VA for two decades. I'm just kind of curious is, how do you think that this COVID pandemic could catalyze uh, that shift from a, again, from a medical mindset or model to more of a public health introducing, and I know you talked a little bit about this issue of scarcity as well. So just some of your thoughts on that. I listened to a recent uh, podcast that you did around with uh, Dr. Tony Sloan uh, from the CEO of Renown Health, and it was really it really resonated with me greatly. Well, a lot of your, all your podcasts do, but um, that one did from the standpoint of well, I know you you have a background of population public health, but his background, incredible background around public health and being able to and as a leader, you're so right because as him being a leader of this incredible healthcare system, being able to come at it from a public health perspective is very special. Um, because typically that's not what, unfortunately, most, how our model is set up right now, as we know. Our model is really set up to be, it's a clinical model, uh, care model. It's, uh, so when we think about a clinical care model, it's really a clinical care model, which is of, of abundance. And as we know with public health, it really, you have to think about how do we deal with scarcity? And I think I thought that that was a brilliant exchange between you and him. And because that is something that, I mean, we're experiencing right now, whether it is trying to figure out, you know, do we have enough ventilators? Of course, PPE right now is a big one, um, which we need to figure out that we just solve. But it really gets down to, as we think about just care overall and how we address care, 
um, because as we know, we spend more on care than any country um, in the world. And so the question then becomes, is, it, is the, the care model from a care, uh, care model from abundance, is that the right way? You know, we, I think that the future will be that we need to start thinking from the scarcity approach and being able to, and I, and I think some healthcare systems have been starting to do that already when we think about like, for instance, understanding, um, you know, trying to mitigate patients going into the emergency room, for instance, right? So this is a great example right now. People are second, they're not thinking directly to go to the emergency room right now. Whereas in the past, and not passing judgment, but I had a lot of patients that came in that probably didn't have to come to the emergency room. Now in their mind, it was, it was the mindset of abundance. They were like, oh, here's a emergency room that's open. I need to be seen at 11 o'clock at night. I'm going to go in. Whereas maybe the right way to do it is, hey, maybe let's through telehealth, right? Through asynchronous telehealth or through if they really feel like they need to go to an urgent care, perhaps a 24-7 urgent care, which is something that a lot of healthcare systems have developed. But really start thinking about looking at ways from a scarcity approach, building out the right model and looking at it from a, and I think we, we have no choice now. And I think because as we know with this pandemic, um, even though this pandemic, we're going to get it stabilized, but th the reality is that we're going to be susceptible for more pandemics in the future. And so having that approach of, of really um, embracing public health is something that's going to be absolutely critical. And I would say that taking this mindset of whole health, taking a mindset of looking at all the signals, looking at all the signals around us is going to be even more important for healthcare systems and public sector and any type of service industry to really embrace because we cannot be surprised by those events. We cannot be uh, dealing with um, looking through the back view, uh, rear view mirror, right? We have to have those signals and all of them and to include employee experience, customer experience, patient experience, seeing the whole person, the whole human, harness those signals to be able to anticipate and proactively provide the services and care and benefits that our public needs. That's well said. I'm going to come back to the whole health and maybe we could end on that, thinking about this issue quite a bit. I think it is paradoxical and I think it is a fundamental reframe because we we have been sort of brainwashed in terms of abundance. And we've been brainwashing ourselves about that. And I think the statement that came to mind as I heard you speak, uh, let me run this by you, is if we don't think of healthcare in terms of scarcity, yes. what we'll get is healthcare full of disparity and equity. And it's such a paradoxical statement, but I think it is so true because it's the reality we have now where we're seeing so much disparity and inequity and exacerbated and revealed by the current pandemic, but it was there all along and no question about it. And I think that far from limiting healthcare, that notion of it is a scarce resource, let's be intentional about how we think about it could actually drive down that level of disparity and inequity. Because to your point, what it forces us to do is be very mindful of the resources and to use them as appropriately as we can. And is that, is that the gist of what you were saying? Absolutely. You said it better. No, no, I didn't. But I listened to you very closely. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely right. And the thing is, that I did say, you know, we're not passing judgments because a lot of it, I mean, frankly, I think I was, I was part of that. You know, I think we all have, have a role, role in it. And I think as we're, and, and I think this, this event, this once in a lifetime event, I think it, um, it's allowing us to think differently. And the thing is about this, it's not about despair, it's about hope. We've come out of crises before better than ever. Um, I mean, post 9-11, we've had various pandemics around the world. In the past, we've had um, you know, the wars, of course, with Iraq and Afghanistan. And I mean, there, as you think about, we have had crises before and it has changed behavior for the better. You know, it's allowing us to do a retrospective of, of how we should really move forward. And I think, you know, your point about, I don't think I know your point that you made about how do we make sure that we do not miss the lessons of COVID, of this pandemic, I think is spot on. Because if we do, history will have repeat itself. And we have an opportunity right now with a, a galvanized nation, a galvanized world that are coming together in heroic ways to rethink and think things differently, it does not only have to be in response. It has to be in recovery too, and post-recovery in mitigation and planning. 
And that's, I think, something that we cannot lose momentum and we need leaders. And thank you for your leadership, like your leaders like yourself and many other leaders out there that are pounding the pavement of how we should be taking this, this uh, crisis and helping to reframe, reframe healthcare. You know, I, I think you and I should start writing together because I'm going to riff off of you again. I think, you know, no, I think this is such a critical, important point, and maybe we'll we'll kind of end with this point. You know, obviously the COVID nineteen pandemic is tragic, no question about that. But I think to your point, the real tragedy will be if we don't learn from this crisis and if we don't make these fundamental reframes in healthcare. And I think there's going to be a lot of force. Uh, much of it well-intentioned, well-meaning, uh, to kind of go back to where the way we were. I've just heard so many people talking about normal, and um, I, I'm not sure there was anything normal about healthcare before COVID-19. But I think that that's a really important point: is instead of scrambling to get back to normal, let's really take our time and be thoughtful of creating the new normal that is better than than what we called normal before. Uh, you know, I just want to say it, it's so much fun to speak with you. I'm so glad that we got uh, introduced through this podcast interview, and uh, I hope to have many more conversations with you. Thank you, Doc. We'll be looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time and for the work that you've done and, and your service and the work you've done in the Veteran Affairs Administration. And I'm looking so much uh, forward to the work that you're going to be doing with Medallia. And so, you know, I just want to turn to the audience. As always, I hope you've benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide useful information as well as encouragement, inspiration, and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And again, I just want to take this moment as I do each and every episode to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I know our guest today is shaking his head in agreement as I say this. In these times especially, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, to communities, and to our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself. And please share this podcast series with your colleagues. I think this message, particularly this episode, is such important lessons to be learned and to be shared with uh, leaders and practitioners across the country. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.